Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, open up with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. We want you to have the Word of God in your lap. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're three weeks into our new series that I've entitled House Rules, the verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Timothy. And we will find ourselves closing chapter 1 this morning. By way of reminder, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is instructing young Timothy here, his protege and his son in the faith, to lay down some house rules relating to corporate gatherings and daily living for Christians. In, in that specific area of Ephesus, for sure, but also in a broader sense, in a much broader sense, even us today. This letter is not just to Timothy, but it's also to us. Personal letter Paul is writing saying, hey, this is what you should look for in church, and this is what you should be doing in your own personal lives on a daily basis. And we're going to cover a gamut of different things as we go through this um, verse by verse. A very, very uh, impactful first two uh, sermons is, is the Lord kind of gone, we've gone through verses 1 through 11. The first week we talked about um, the importance of sound doctrine and how, you know, if you don't have sound doctrine, you really have no foundation. And so then it's kind of up for anybody to do anything. And so you get caught up in fables and you get caught up in people's ideologies of genealogies and different, different teachings that people were, um, speculative teachings that have no really relevance or any, any kind of biblical stance whatsoever, but people just start throwing out anything. And so it's so important to be steadfast in sound doctrine as, as we come together. We want the Word of God to be the, the primary. And then last week, as we moved into um, verses 12 uh, through 17, we talked about Paul sort of moved into this very personal place where he started to share with us, uh, you know, his salvation story and, and really a sinner's response to salvation. And uh, remember, in 146 words, he shared his testimony. I challenged you last week. To, to go home and write a 150-word testimony, you know, something that would encapsulate what God has done in your life. And how many of you guys did that? Did anybody do that? Anybody, anybody do that? It, wow, wow. You guys are horrible at homework, man. Listen, here's why I challenge you to do it. Because when you get the opportunity to share your testimony, it's generally going to be in 150 words or less. So it's a good exercise for you to talk about who you were, how you had that conversation with the Lord, and how he converted you, and who you are now. And really, it's that simple, three things, who you were, how you met the Lord, and what he's doing in your life now. And really, that's, that's a great format for it. So I would encourage you to take the time to do it, because you're going to have opportunities in passing to share the gospel with people. And, uh, you know... Of course, one of the greatest ways to share the gospel is with how the gospel's impacted you. It's personally passing on. This is what the Lord has done in my life. I'm not talking theology. I'm talking practical. This is what God has done in me. And I want to share that with you. And I know God will do that in you. If he can do that in me, he can do it in you. And so you get the opportunity to do that. So I encourage you to do that. But if you missed um, any of those studies, you can go back to our website and check them out. Today, we're going to be talking about what it means to wage the good warfare. To wage the good warfare. Stand with me and we're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 1 beginning in verse 18. Paul says to young Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask now, Lord, that you would quicken our hearts to obey what it is that you would say to us individually today. Lord, we thank you. We ask you to come now and speak to us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I, I have a, a confession to make this morning that 
I think you need to know that I personally love Hollywoodized war movies for a lot of reasons, but in particular because they never run out of bullets, and number two is the good guys always win, right? So those are some good reasons to uh, like those things, but, but one of the really real reasons why I, I enjoy the, the intensity of some of those movies is primarily because of the speeches that happen, right? I mean, there's always a point in, in, in probably every movie, but you know, and, and when, when they're getting ready to go into battle or they're in the middle of the battle, there's just, just like this inspirational moment, right? Where the leader just takes charge and he, and he starts to tell these, pump these people up and tell them, look, you know, I know you're fearful and all these kinds of things, but here's what you need to know. And he gives them a word of encouragement. He boosts them up. And then, of course, because it's Hollywood, then they win, right? Now, I mean, if I were going to put... 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, in any kind of a context, I put it in that context. I would put this in a place where, where it's almost like the crescendo of, of the movie, like you can see that there's, there's this doubt, and you can see that there's this timidness. You can see that there's this really unwillingness to do what needs to be done. There's a fear in Timothy. But it's like Paul just, you know, in, in the movie, he gives Timothy this big sort of charge to step up and to do what he's called to do. And it's, it's really kind of that context or that kind of a momentum as we move into these verses that I find here. You know, Paul uh, you wrote this as not in, not in chapters and verses. This is just a simple letter, right? So there's no starting and stopping. And in fact, oftentimes in the Greek, some of these sentences are multiple and multiple verses long. There, they, there's no period. There's no punctuation. We added all of that to make it easier for us and to, to put a numbering system so that we can remember some of these things. You know, oftentimes when, when you hear, um, you know, in the scriptures, when you read Paul quoting a verse, he doesn't say, in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, it says, your righteousness is like filthy rags before the Lord, you know, or something like that. He doesn't say the, the, the chapter in the verse because they're not there. But he does say the prophet Isaiah says this. Now imagine trying to remember these scriptures with no numbering systems and everything. Our brains could do it, but, you know, it would take a lot more work. It's nice to have some sort of a reference point. And, but, but as we move into these, these verses, I, I kind of feel like it's like the, the crescendo of the movie for, um, for the Apostle Paul when he's charging Timothy to do these things. I had some quotes, but I'm going to move past that because... Um, we don't have time for that right now. Uh, Warren Wearsby said this about the Christian life. He said, the Christian life is not a playground, but a battleground. The Christian life is not a playground or a battleground. And, and that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy here. He said, Timothy, you need to wage the good warfare you need to get in the, get in the battle and you need to, to, to do this in Ephesus because it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a, a, a fight, but you need to wage the good warfare. You need to fight. The entirety of your Christian life is a war. The entirety of it. Now, some of us like kind of maybe be here this morning and feel like, wow, I don't really feel like it's a war. <laughs> Just wait. Just wait. Be, oftentimes we forget in our Christian walk, as things go on and life goes on and whatever, we forget that we're in a war. We forget that, you know, um, that, that we have um, an enemy that is trying to steal, kill, and destroy. I mean, we know that theologically, but on a practical level, most of our lives are going okay. Or, they're, they're, or what we do is we call spiritual warfare something else. No, we, we don't call it war. We don't call it the enemy attacking me. Um, we call it something else. And what that does is it breeds this, this mindset of forgetting that we are in a war and that we need to uh, remind ourselves that, as Paul said in Ephesians 6, 6, 12, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in every evil in the heavenly places. We forget most of the time because our enemy is really unseen for the most part. We can see the effects of the war that we fight, but, but oftentimes we can't, see, we can't see him coming. 
He's crafty. He's deceitful. He lies in wait. He's incredibly patient. So if you're not going through something right now in this moment, just wait. He's incredibly patient, and he's waiting for the right moment. And here's the thing is, it's not going to come out of an area that you don't struggle with. It's going to be an area that you struggle with because he's not unique in the way that he tempts us. He tempts us in the same things. You ever notice that? You ever notice that there's a cycle in your life that it just kind of keeps going around to the same things, maybe packaged in a little bit different areas, but it's the same issue. The enemy knows you well, but here's the reality. And this is what we need to understand about the war that we're in. The war actually is over. I mean, practically speaking, we're, 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 we're working out in a present tense sort of idea that, you know, we're, we're fighting for not victory, because victory was won already. But what are we fighting for in the present tense is we're fighting against the defeated devil who is trying to rip and kill and steal and destroy anything and everyone he can that represents the Lord. That's what we're fighting against. It's not for victory, folks. So oftentimes we, we, we are, we're thinking like, man, I don't know if the victory is going to come here. The victory has come. And I want to encourage you this morning, when you encounter spiritual warfare, that you're not looking for victory, but you're walking in victory. Now, here's the thing about victory, and it's kind of confusing. Victory doesn't always look or feel like victory, does it? In your life, it doesn't always look or feel like victory. What do I mean? Well, let's just go back to the moment when victory was won. You have... 12, 72 disciples, 120 maybe up in this upper room, afraid, feeling defeated, not feeling like something's been won because Christ has gone to the cross and he's died. That is the picture of victory. But to, that, to these disciples, that was a picture of defeat, actually. They were in an upper room, afraid, scared, door-locked, saying, oh my gosh, what do we do now? No hope. Hope completely gone. Saturday morning they wake up and they, they were wishing that it was just a dream. Jesus told them, victory is going to be had. I will win this war, just trust me. And he gave them indication over and over and over again that he was going to um, provide victory through the cross. He was going to die. And yet they didn't see it that way. I bring that up because I think oftentimes we don't see victory in our lives already because it, it doesn't have the appearance of victory to us. It doesn't feel like victory, right? It feels awful, an awful lot, and it looks an awful lot like defeat. Sometimes we can get the idea that the enemy is winning. He is not. He's not winning in your life. You have victory already. Positionally, as it, God relates to the Lord and the devil, you're already on the winning team if you're in Christ this morning. You don't have to try and get to victory. You don't have to pave your own way to it. It's already given to you. And in fact, the devil knows that. If you're outside of Christ, then you have no victory. You have no victory. You, you have no ability to, to really even be victorious over this battle, but you're in it too. And so the best place to be is to be in Christ where you have victory over the enemy. You have victory over yourself, over your flesh. Paul is, in some ways I feel like what Paul is saying here in these verses is talking about the context of, um, you know, warfare within the walls of the church. But I would also say that the waging the good warfare for Timothy, listen to this, is waging the good warfare within himself. And why do I say that? Because Timothy is afraid. He's timid. He doesn't want to be in Ephesus. He, he wants to leave. Paul encourages him up in like first four or so. He says, you need to remain, Timothy, and fulfill your calling. You know, and, and I, we talked about the idea of, of how fear will stop you from stepping into your calling. I, I feel like as Timothy is being exhorted by Paul here to wage the good warfare, that it's, it, it's, it's beyond the context of just within the four walls of the church and to make being steadfast with sound doctrine and, 
and, and those sorts of things. Also, you know, getting rid of the false teachers, although that is the context. I would say to, to some degree on a personal application level that it's waging the good warfare within yourself. I think that we can all uh, use an exhortation this morning about that. Because some of us don't feel like we, 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 we can, you know, get past the things that are going on in our life. Maybe it's a past hurt or maybe it's a, a, a recurring sin in your life or maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's a fear that you don't feel like you can get, a, get, get past. And I want to tell you, you can because Jesus overcame for you. And so you have victory in the Lord. And I, I want to, we'll, we'll kind of bring that out as we go through this. There's three things I want to talk about regarding waging the good warfare this morning. Number one is the charge from, from Paul to Timothy uh, to wage the good warfare first. Look at verse 18. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my children, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So here we have Paul after praising God, coming out of that doxology in verse 17, and he is exhorting the Lord. He's thanking the Lord for everything that the Lord has done. We didn't get a lot of chance to work on that last week, but to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And he moves right into talking about this charge I entrust to you, Timothy. Paul's coming from a place of victory already. He's coming from verse 17 where he is talking about the victory. He's praising God because of the victory. Now he's telling Timothy, walk in the victory too. Telling him, I want to charge you. Timothy, that word charge, in, in the Greek it's a military word that means I command you or I order you. Now, Paul is saying, I, I command you, Timothy, not as your, not as your you know, spiritual father, not because I'm your discipler and you're my disciplee, but because I'm an apostle. And this is Jesus speaking directly to you from me. This, I'm coming in apostolic authority to charge you. Is there ever a context where a Christian should command another Christian to do something? Yes, there is if the Bible says so. You, you know what people call that in, in our world today? They call it judgment. I think, wait a second. How, how can I be judging somebody when Jesus said it? I, I'm not saying it. Jesus said it. When Jesus said something, and I'm, I'm prophetically in the sense of uh, the forth telling, I'm speaking forth in, in boldness God's word, that is not judgment, folks. That is truth. Now, you can be judgmental in your attitude when you come to somebody in that way. But the words themselves are not judgmental. God's word is meant to confront. It's meant to heal. It's meant, it's meant to do a, a whole bunch of different things. And God knows why we need to say what we need to say in the moment. But we, we need to not shy away from speaking God's, God's truth. Paul doesn't shy away from telling Timothy, I command you, Timothy, in the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you in apostolic authority, um, and check this out. And then he, then he moves to a, a more subtle word. And I entrust you. Not only do I, do I charge you, but I entrust you. Now this is like a fatherly word. You know, it's like he says, I am commanding you in the apostolic authority, but at the same time, as a father would to a child, I want to entrust you. What he's saying is, I'm, I'm giving you something that has value, and I'm trusting you with it. That's the idea of entrustment. There's value being placed in Timothy's hands, and he says, I want you to be a good steward of this. Now, the reason why we entrust people with things is for maturity purposes, right? As a, as a parent to a child, you, you take your, your children and you say, here, I'm going to entrust you with this. Why? Because you want them to grow. You want them to mature in the Lord. You want them to mature in their, their, their abilities to do whatever it is that you're asking them to do. And as they mature, then they get more responsibility. That's the Christian life, folks. It's that simple. Like Jesus utilizes that parental a parallel because it's, it's the way that he relates to us. He's our dad. And as a dad, he entrusts us with things. And he wants us to, to be faithful with those things so that he can entrust us with more things. And, and Paul, in, in the same kind of way, is saying, I'm entrusting you, which I've, the, the very thing that I've been entrusted, Timothy, 
the calling that I've been entrusted and the gospel that I've been entrusted with, I'm entrusting with you. Now go, go in and, and be faithful with it. He calls him his, his child here. Paul goes on here and, and he says, listen to this. I charge and I entrust you, Timothy, my child, listen, not out of nowhere, but in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. About the prophecies made about Timothy. What is prophecy? Prophecy, the, there, there, there's two meanings of that word. Prophecy is, is the foretelling of the future or something, some event that's going to happen and you're telling it before it happens. That's, that's, you know, you think of the Old Testament and you think about all the prophecies that have been given about Jesus way before he ever, uh, you know, lived. Isaiah writing 700 years or so before Christ came and all, and all these different prophecies in the Old Testament that speak about Jesus. Those are the foretelling of something, of, of Jesus coming or whatever it is. But there's also in the sense of the word prophecy, the foretelling, and that is of something that God has already said. So you have the foretelling, like I'm speaking prophetically right now because I'm speaking God's word. He's already said it. I'm not a prophet. I'm speaking prophetically in the foretelling of God's word. What is he saying here? What, what's the context of the word prophecy here? I believe it's the foretelling. I believe the prophetic word that was going forth in Timothy, Timothy's life here was there were people, elders or whoever it was, that came around Timothy that laid their hands on Timothy and they began to speak prophetically, foretelling the things that Timothy was going to, the Lord was calling him to do. Now, Paul tells us like in general what the kind of the bent or the context of what a prophetic word will look like. If you remember in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he starts to talk about the spiritual gifts and then he talks about, you know, love being the, the most important and, and then he moves into chapter 14 and he starts to speak about prophecy and he says, man, you know, if you want any gift, don't, the, the gift of tongues is great, but, you know, speak prophetically, man. And, and he tells us what that means in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 3. He says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So, you know, we have to imagine that when Paul is saying, Timothy, you need to walk in accordance with the prophecies that were spoken over you. They were things that were building Timothy up in that moment. They were things that were encouraging him and comforting him. And, and, and so oftentimes, you know, it, not always positive, by the way, not always positive. Sometimes a prophetic word can come from somebody and they can say, listen, this is what's going to happen, but you need to press on. Let me give you an example one time. I was at a um, church in, in Florida, and, and I was part of the um, leadership team there, and we were getting ready to buy a building to move our church. And so we had a prayer meeting, and we had, all, you know, the congregation was there and everything, and we were praying, and the Lord, um, you know, the pastor's like, Lord, you know, if... We're excited. We can't wait to see what's going to happen. The Lord spoke to me very specifically about what was going to happen. The Lord said to me, this deal is not going to go through, and, you know, this isn't going to happen. And you know what I did? I said nothing. I'm like, I ain't saying that. There's no way I'm saying that right here in front of all these people. Here was an entrustment God had given me a prophetic word God had given me, not because he wanted to let everybody down, but because he wanted to build everybody up because it was going to happen. And the Lord wanted them to know that he sees you. He knows what's going on in your life. He, he's going to see you through these things. This didn't come out of nowhere. He said it was going to happen. And it, so I, I didn't say anything. And it didn't happen. And I was like, oh, wow. It's the first time that's ever happened to me. And I was like, whoa. So I went to my pastor and I said, hey, uh, I got to tell you something. I, I feel really bad because I feel like the Lord told me this and I didn't say anything. And he's like, dude, dude, you need to, you know, speak forth. When God tells you to say something, you say it. You don't hold it back because you're worried about how people are going to perceive it or receive it or whatever. But you need to speak that forth because it's meant to build up. 
even though it was a negative in context in my, from my perspective, it's not in God's perspective, right? And I, I, I think that that happens to us in general and people. Not everybody has that gift or whatever. It's a gift of the Spirit. He discerns. But I know that most of us are fear man. I don't know if there's anybody here that doesn't. You might say you don't, but, but the reality is, is that sometimes we'll withhold. And, and listen, when we withhold a spiritual gift, which prophecy is a spiritual gift, we're robbing God's body. And we're robbing the Lord of being able to minister in that moment. He'll still minister. You know, it's not like you, you've completely blown his plan. He's like, oh my, what is he doing? <laughs> you know, he, he'll, he'll still work through it. But you have an opportunity to, to minister in that moment. Timothy had, had men come over him. I believe in, in, in kind of what, in light of what I'm already reading through here, is that they were laying hands on Timothy and saying, listen, I know you're going to not want to do this, but the Lord is calling you to do it. Timothy, when you are fearful, you look to the Lord and you get your eyes on the Lord and maybe the Lord gives him some, some, some you know, scripture or something to hold on to or whatever. But it's that, that idea of laying on the hands and, and speaking prophetically over his life that Paul's referring to. And he's saying, remember what, what God said to you through these men. Oh, I don't know, man. I, was that really the Lord? You know, and, and then what happens is we start to doubt. Listen, walk by faith. Always err on the side of walking by faith. Don't ever err on the side of going, well, I'm going to hold something back because I'm not sure if it's the Lord. If you're going to err, err on the side of faith. I, I think if you go before the Lord and, and, you know, this is my human mind thinking, not my, this isn't the spirit necessarily, but this is my human mind, the way it, my human mind works, that if, if I go to the Lord and I say, I operated by faith, God, and I thought that's what you wanted me to do, I don't think he's going to say, dude, you suck. You know, I think he's going to say, I'm glad you operated by faith because I can work with that. What he can't work with is doubt. What he can't work with is somebody who's unbelieving and not willing to step out and to step into whatever he's calling them to do. Timothy, you're going to be challenged in, in stepping into the, your calling, but I'm going to give prophecies over your life so that you have something to hang on to. God knows what you need to hear in order to move you to do what you need to do. Isn't that cool that God would do that? It's so cool that he does that. He says, Timothy, let me remind you about the prophecies that were spoken over uh, your life. Um, Paul goes on here, and then he gives him the charge. He says, I want you to wage the good warfare. The word wage means to engage in battle, to fight. The Lord is not a pacifist. He's not a pacifist. You know, I was in Washington, D.C. Um, about, I don't know, eight years, seven, eight, eight years ago or something with my family. We were, we were just kind of touring around looking at it. You know, you, you always go to the White House, and there's always protesters there, always. You know, but in this particular instance, and there's always protesters regarding what? War. There's this pacifistic idea, you know, and we're not going to talk about that because that's not really what we're talking about. But the, the concept of this guy had a sign out there, and he said something to the effect of, stop war, WWJD. Now, generally speaking, if somebody has a sign like that, and they're out in front of the White House, they're not doing that for conversation. Like, they want to create some sort of confrontation, some sort of division. That's the point. And, and so this, this guy has a sign, and he's out there, and, and, and I'm like, what would Jesus do? Well, I mean, last time I checked, Jesus is going to come back and wage war on the world. I don't know. I don't think he's a pacifist regarding that. You know, let's, I'm not going to talk about gen genocide and all that kind of stuff, but, but in terms of the context of what would Jesus do, well, at least what will Jesus do is really the question. He's coming back with a sword. And uh, it was interesting because this kid was like, I don't know, probably 17, 16, 17 years old. He's walking by with his mom and his brother. And he goes, he's, he walks by. And I'm just kind of watching. You know, I'm like, I see what's going to happen here. And this kid walks by and he looks down at the sign. He walks past it and then he turns around and he comes back and he starts talking to the guy. And he, and he starts saying, you know, what would Jesus do? What do you think Jesus would do? 
The guy's like, well, you know, I don't think Jesus doesn't want us to do this stuff and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And this kid, man, he goes, have you ever read the Bible, dude? Like, for real, have you ever read what the Bible says? I mean, you're, you have this fanciful view of somebody maybe you don't know or maybe you know nothing about. But, but I can tell you, the Lord is, is, you know, he's a warrior. And he stands up for what's right. And, you know, he said, he said, I want to tell you something, man. The Lord's coming back, and he's bringing war with him. What would Jesus do? What will Jesus do? He's going to bring war. And, and it was just really an eye-opening situation there. I was like, wow, that's awesome that somebody would be bold enough. And, he, and I'm not going to say he did it in a great way because it got a little heated, you know. And, and that's, that's obviously, you know, like I said, Tell the truth, but make sure your heart matches the heart of Jesus when you tell it, right? We're called to wage war, man, to wage war. That, that's an active tense. It's saying I'm engaging in something. I'm not waiting for it to happen. I'm going to engage. I'm going to run into the battle, not away from the battle. That's the idea. Wage war. Don't wait for it. You wage the war. Who are we waging the war against? Who is he supposed to wage the war against? Against Satan. Well, in, in this particular contest against the messengers of Satan who are false teachers teaching false doctrine in the church. And he's saying, you need to wage the good warfare, Timothy. You need to engage in this battle. Don't run away from it. You run to it. Now, how does that fit into our present-day context? Well, what about this? You get the knock at the door. Hello, I'm a Jehovah's Witness, and I've come to tell you about, you know, um, Jehovah, and I've come to tell you about Jesus and all these kinds of things. Or I'm a Mormon and, you know, I like to tell you about, listen, <laughs> don't run away from the fight. Yeah. Somebody knocks on your door and they want to talk to you about the Lord, you're not going to talk to them about the Lord? You know, well, I'm, a, I'm afraid that I don't know enough and all these kinds of things. Well, then, then do something about it. Get to know what the Bible says. Don't, don't run from the battle. Run to the battle. So get yourself equipped to know something. But here's the thing is, you don't have to know what they know. You have to know what you know. You have to know what the Bible says. So I love when Jehovah's Witnesses knock on my door or Mormons knock on my door because, you know what, I'm going to engage in that conversation and I'm going to talk to them about Jesus. And, you know, they have a script that they go off of. And, and it's, it's just what they've been taught. What you need to understand, these people love, uh, the, they, they love the, the concept of the Lord that they have and they're, they're really sold out to what they're doing. I don't know many Christians that would go on knock on doors and, and receive the persecution that these people receive. I mean, that takes a boldness. And, the, and again, just like, you know, they're sincerely doing this, but they're sincerely wrong in what they believe. So we get the opportunity. The Lord says, hey, here's the, here's the battle. Have the conversation. You have an opportunity to... Um, Change somebody's life there, you know, and, and, and don't be afraid of that. Get yourself equipped so you can have these conversations. Just know what you need to know. Jesus Christ is the only way. Uh, Jesus, is, Jesus is not a created being. He is God in the flesh. And, and you can, you know, the, the basics of the, of the Bible, just understand the basics of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. That's all you need to know. Let, let me give you an example of this. Walter Martin, I don't know if you know who he is. He was an incredible um, apologetic man that spoke against cults and stuff. And uh, I think somebody I listened to told a story about Walter Martin. And he went into the Watchtower Society in New York. Watchtower Society is the society that prints all of the, um, all of the materials and Bibles and all that stuff for the Jehovah's Witness religion. So Walter Martin walks into the place and he gets a tour of it and he, you know, he's just walking through it and everything, kind of seeing what they're doing and all that. And then the, the, the tour's over and they take him into this room. It's the exit way, essentially. He walks into this room and there's a man sitting at a desk with a Bible, the New World Translation, which is the Jehovah's Witness Translation. And he, uh, um, he's walking out the door, and the guy says, hey, have a good day. And he turned back, and he looked at the Bible, was opened on, on the desk there. So he walked up to the Bible. He opened up to Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. And 
with in a sort of a boisterous voice and with his finger he said I am the alpha, alpha and omega says the Lord who is and was and is to come the almighty and he walked out several years later Walter Martin was at a church in California giving a sermon he was in New York and at the end of his sermon uh, some dude stood up in the congregation and Walter Martin didn't engaged like that. He didn't have those kind of conversations. So the guy said, hey, can I say something? And generally he would say no. But for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit, you know, broke him in that way and he said, go for it. And the guy said, you know, several years ago, um, you walked into my work and you took a tour and I was sitting at a desk and you opened up to the passage, Revelation chapter 1 verse 8. And all you said to me was, I am the Alpha and the Omega, you know, the one who is and is and is to come, the Almighty. And you walked out. And that verse echoed in my mind for days. I could not sleep. I could not, I had no understanding of who Jesus was until that verse hit me right in that moment and I understood Jesus was God. And he said, I gave my life to the Lord. I'm serving the Lord now. And, and, and here's the deal. The, the guy didn't do anything but gave him the word of God. We have a script, guys. We don't need to craftily make up anything. We have everything we need to tell people about who God is. Isn't that amazing? The powerful word of God. We just speak forth. We need to address the, 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 the things that we see. The Lord allows them in your life for a reason. If there's some specific bent that you have and doctrine that you don't like, that, that you know is unbiblical or whatever, why do you think you have that? It's because the Holy Spirit wants to maybe use you in that particular area. You know, it, it's amazing how, if we'll just dig in a little bit, how much information we can get and how, how the Lord can use us in, in ways like that. We don't want to run from the fight. We want, to run into the we want to run into the battle. And we want to strip the enemy of deceiving other people. And we want to take as many people to heaven as we can because he's trying to take as many people to hell as he can. And, and you know what? We need to give people the word. I, I can't help but that, that's kind of what Paul is telling Timothy here. He's saying, man... Timothy, this is a very personal thing for you too. Take, take the, the prophecies that have been spoken over you, take the word that's been entrusted to you, and you run into the battle, dude. Wage the good warfare. Secondly, Paul moves on and he tells him the means of waging the good warfare. He tells him how to do it. How do I wage the good warfare? Well, he goes on in verse 19. He says, holding faith and a good conscience. This is, there's a twofold response to how do we do this? Well, we hold faith and hold a good conscience. Those are the two things that he's talking about. First, hold faith. That, that word there, um, faith, means to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance, to believe in, to have confidence in, to have faith in, to trust in what? In himself? What is he supposed to trust in? The thing that he's been entrusted with, which is the gospel, and he's supposed to trust in the prophecies that have been spoken over him, holding faith. Now, we have a, a definition of what faith is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It's, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. God has given us the assurance of things hoped for in his word. Everything that God says will happen. You can take it to the bank. You have assurance, security, that everything he said is going to happen. The, the assurance of things hoped for, we're hoping in the sense that, you know, that it will happen. We just don't know when, but we have assurance and we know it. It's God's word. We use God's word. God's word is what we have the assurance of things hoped for in. He goes on here, and, and, and David, David said we should trust God's word. In fact, he said in Psalm 138 too, he said that the Lord honors God, his word above his name, right? So God cares about his word. We should care about his word. We have that assurance that, that God will do everything that he said he was going to do. Listen, even when we can't see how, 
even when we can't see how. That's the second part of faith, is that even though we can't see, we have the conviction of things not seen. We have the assurance of knowing that everything he said he's going to do, he will do. Everything he said is going to happen is going to happen. And then we have the conviction of things not seen. We don't know when, but we know it will happen. And we know that it will come to pass. And again, if we're not careful, we can question that. We could go, I, I can't see. I mean, I'll be honest. Sometimes I go through things in my life, and I, I do. I ask myself, I go, how in the world can God make anything good come out of this? Like, how could he possibly use this for my good? But then you have to quickly tell yourself, but Lord, I trust you. And I know that you know way more than me. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. This is not Christian blind faith. It's not blind faith. God has already shown us he will do everything that he says he will do. It's not blind faith. It, it is faith, though. And I say, Lord, how can you do it? And the Lord says, just, just remember what I said in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for the good of those who love me who are called according to my purpose. And then you go, oh, Lord, I'm going to trust your word. I'm going to trust in what you say here. Paul says that we need to wage the good warfare by holding faith, literally, to hold on to in continual possession of. Secondly, in maintaining a good conscience. The conscience is a psychological faculty that can distinguish between right and wrong. A good conscience, then, is a conscience that's sensitive to moral things, to the things that God is sensitive to. Now, as an unbeliever, we have an inherent conscience from God. We have, we have sort of this built-in guiding mechanism that tells us what's right and what's wrong, right? All of us have that. Like, the, God has lit, written his law on our heart. Like, he's given us uh, sort of these parameters to help us understand it. Everybody in human history has this. In fact, you can go to, you know, the Bushmen and, you know, some country they've never heard about the Lord, never know anything about anything, but they have a moral conscience as a compass that they use and they guide their life through, and they know what's right and wrong to, to a degree. That's because that's inherent. That's something that's innate. That's something that God gave us in our DNA. The Lord, when he wrote the code for you, he wrote in specific, you know, uh, things regarding his, regarding his moral law that is embedded in your DNA. And your DNA works with your spirit, and I don't know how it all works. I don't think anybody can explain that. But we have a moral compass within us that it was God-given. And, and, and so, you know, the thing is, is when we're redeemed, then that, that moral compass is it's like upgraded. It's, you know, as you get more of the word of God in you, then you start to see that moral compass get um, a little more sensitive, right? You know, you're not necessarily uh, knowing what some sins are until the Lord reveals them to you in his word. Then you're like, whoa, that was a sin? I, can't, I remember when I, was a, when I first became a believer, I'm like, that's a sin? Oh, man, I didn't know that was a sin. I had no idea that that was a sin, but as I got into God's word, my moral compass, my conscience grew. And the Lord, you know, started to talk to me through that. Um, but here's the thing about our conscience. You know, Paul is encouraging Timothy to hold a good conscience. You see, if you don't hold a good conscience, your conscience can be what's called seared. And Paul will talk about that later in this letter to Timothy. Your, your conscience can be cauterized. And then there's no sensitivity whatsoever to certain sins. How does that happen? By allowing sin in your life and unrepentant sin and not, not doing something about it, not dealing with it, or, you know, that's how you become less and less sensitive to sin is by living in sin. You know, and so we can at some point become totally insensitive to sin. And I would say to a large degree that's what's happened uh, with the Word of God as it relates to certain subjects in our culture today is that there are people who don't like what it says in the Word of God, so they walk by feelings rather than by their mind, and they say, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like the way that feels or makes me feel, so I'm going to re disregard that. And then they live in that sin, 
and their heart becomes less sensitive to it. And then, then what happens is they be, begin to promote it as if it's okay. And that happens even with, with, with pastors and teachers and, and, you know, all kinds of people. Every Christian struggles with that. That's why we have to be diligent with our heart. We have to be diligent about what we allow to, um, to, to, to live in our, our hearts and our minds because we can sear our conscience to the point where we will, well, the extreme view, we can start to say it's okay. And we can start to say like, well, I don't think God meant that. Seared conscience. Adam Clark described a seared conscience as one carterized by repeated applications of sin and resisting of the Holy Spirit. The Facet Bible Dictionary explains it as a hardening determination to resist every spiritual impression. The pulpit commentary said it's the gradual deterioration of sensibility produced by habitual sin. John Wesley said, likened it to drunkenness of the soul, a fatal numbness of the spirit. That's what it means to sear your conscience. How do, I, how do we keep a good conscience then? By applying the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how we keep a good conscience. In fact, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 through 14 says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify and purify purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How do we keep a good conscience by the application of the blood of Christ in our life. We struggle. If we, if we mess up, we repent. We apply the blood of Christ. You know, this is, again, not a theological idea of applying the word of Christ. It's a practical idea of applying the blood of Christ, meaning you take your sin before the Lord and you say, Lord, wash me of this sin, cleanse me, and, and you've already determined you're not turning back to go do it. Now, if you do, well, then you do it again. But you've made that decision to, to move forward. That's repentance. And that's how we keep a good conscience. So the means of, of waging the good warfare is by holding faith and a good conscience, which brings us to our final point here this morning. The result of not waging the good warfare, going on in verse 19, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul says, by rejecting this. Rejecting what? What have they rejected? They have rejected the charge to, to, to wage the good warfare. They have rejected the means to wage the good warfare. In other words, they're not going to hold the faith. They're not going to hold to a good conscience. They've rejected that. That word reject means to thrust away, to push away. They've rejected the word of God. I don't, I don't care what God says. I'm going to do what I want to do. And, and there's, it's impossible for them to keep a good conscience in that way. It's impossible for them to walk out their faith if you reject the word of God. What I want to emphasize here is not necessarily the word faith here, that they have shipwrecked their faith, but the emphasis is on rejection. The emphasis is, is on the result of, uh, of how they got to this place, of not waging the good warfare. What is the result of that? The result of that is when you reject that call, that charge, then you're destined for shipwreck. That, that's the only place that will take you. Like, I know that we think that we're the outer liar, right? We're the, we're the exception to the rule. You're not. If you reject the things that Paul says here, then you will be shipwrecked. It's, it's emphatic in the text. You, it will happen. And he's trying to tell Timothy, beware. And let me give you an example of what that looks like. And so then he names names, and we're like, whoa. Whoa, did, you know, and in our culture today, if we say something from the pulpit, there's a, there's a large portion of people that will turn their ears off. If you mention somebody's name and they're like, oh, you're judging that person. No, I'm not. So if I, if I call out something specific 
that is wrong, doctrinally wrong, I think we have to be sensitive about what it is that we're calling out because you could call me out on something. I'm sure. I, I, I believe that I'm teaching the correct things, but if I'm not, I won't want to be shown. But here's the thing is you can, you can take doctrines. We take a guy like Benny Hinn, for instance, you know, and, and, and there's a, he's in the news a lot nowadays, and he's saying, oh, I repented, and, you know, I'm no longer, but, but from what I understand, he's still, like, having people with fake, you know, healings and his services and stuff. He's per, what he does is he creates an environment. He creates it, not God. He creates an environment. Now, does God use that? I think he does. I think it stirs up faith in people. So, you know, regardless, um, I, I would never promote the guy. I would never say, like, yeah, you should go listen to Benny Hinn. But, but here's the thing is God can use anybody. But I would say, beware. Now, I, would be, I would say, listen, the doctrines that that, that particular um, bent teaches are dangerous. They're dangerous to your faith, and, and they're going to destine you for shipwreck. Why would we call somebody out? Because you're in danger. It'd be like, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, the light on the, what is that? The light on the coast, the searchlight or whatever, the lighthouse. It would be like shutting the lighthouse off when the ships are coming in in a storm and saying, well, I don't know what they're going to do, but I'm getting out of here, you know, kind of thing. Not saying something when something is absolutely wrong and it's leading people astray is wrong. And Paul says, let me tell you exactly uh, what, what, what I mean by rejecting, what I mean by that. Look at Hymenaeus and Alexander. We don't know anything about what these guys have done. There's nothing in Scripture that declares, here's these guys, this is what they've done. What we know is that Paul is talking about false doctrine. He's talking about false teachers and things like that. So maybe they've done that. But what we know is that they were in the faith. They were walking in the faith. They were inside the church. Remember the warning Paul gave to the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He said there will be people externally, wolves that will come in, but there will also be people from within. These guys were from within the church, and they had, they had shipwrecked their faith. They had literally gone off the rails and pursued something else. We don't know what that is. And they were... They were promoting that within the four walls of the church. So when that happens, what, what Paul says, look, Timothy, I, I'm going to give you a great example of, here's an example of somebody who's rejected it, so Hymenaeus and Alexander, but let me also give you the example of what you do when that happens. You deliver them over to Satan. You give them over to Satan. He said, I'm going to hand, I handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Whoa. Whoa, that's, that's pretty heavy. And in our culture today, man, we would be like, who are you? You're going to hand me over to Satan? What does that even mean? He's not literally handing him over to Satan. He's not literally saying, hey, Satan, come get your boys. That's not what he's saying. Like, what he's saying is that I put them out of the church. I put them out of the church. I put them out of the protection that happens within the, the congregating of God's people. You know, where two or three are gathered, there he is in our midst, and these kinds of things. There's, there's, a, there's a, a, a spiritual thing that happens when God's people gather, and, and the reality of it is there's a covering. And what Paul said is, I don't want anybody who is deceiving themselves to feel comfortable and protected in this environment. So I'm, for that reason, I'm going to put them out of the church. But not only that, but I'm protecting the people within the church as well. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And we don't see this a lot today. So this morning, Pastor Brian and Mike, will you guys come up? We're going to deliver some. No, I'm just kidding. We're not. But <laughs> we're not going to do that. They'd probably do that to me. I'd be like, whoa, it's me. Oh, wow. But, but it's necessary. And I know that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people. That God would be that insensitive to my feelings. Well, can we put it in a different light? Eternity is at stake. This isn't about how you feel about it. And your feelings will change. I promise you, give you 10 minutes, it'll change. But here's the thing is, that decision will never change. You breathe your last breath, it's over. There is no other opportunity. There is no purgatory. There is no second chance. 
This is it, folks. And that's why we have to take this seriously. You know, we have to take the Word of God seriously. And, and at the same time, we, we can have fun with each other and we enjoy this and, and all of that. But, but when it comes to waging the warfare, we have to take it seriously because we're in a war. And the enemy is going to do everything that he humanly possibly can to deteriorate what God is doing in his church. And this is what they're dealing with in Ephesus, exactly what happened. Paul said it was going to happen. It happened. It wasn't even Paul. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, said this is what's going to happen. There's going to be wolves. There's going to be people within that are going to rise up. So Paul says, Timothy, wage the good warfare. I am charging you. I'm entrusting you this morning to do that. And that, that charge and entrustment passed on to you this morning. You are now charged and entrusted with the same call that Timothy had. You're called to do that as well. Listen, it's not, not necessarily every believer has the Holy Spirit inside of them and every believer has the capacity to know and to understand the Word of God because we have the best teacher in the world, 1 John 2, 27, the Holy Spirit. So we all have a responsibility to deal with these, these, these issues that happen. Of course, in a congregational setting, there's the elders of the church and there's, the, you know, there's, there's that role that, that is responsible for what happens in these four walls of the church. But also, when you go outside of these four walls, you're responsible for what you allow in your four walls, what you allow in your world. And when God brings something past your desk, it's not coincidence. You know, um, somebody said it multiple times, we're given tests. You know, the Lord gives us, he gives us tests. He puts us in situations and, or allows situations to happen and, and he wants us to respond to them. That's how we mature in the Lord. And, and so what happens if you don't step into that? You'll take it again. And then you'll take it again. And then you'll take it again because God wants to use you. He created and designed you for something specific. And so the things that come across your desk are not coincidence. Receive the charge this morning. Receive the entrustment. Be excited. If you feel in not confident in, in what God has called you to, then listen. You're in the same boat Timothy was in. So listen to this letter. Listen to these words and apply them to your life. Amen? Father, thank you for your word this morning and for uh, just how you've spoken to us about what you're calling us individually to do, Lord. Father, you are asking us this morning, Father, to not run away from the battle, but run into the battle. So we, 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 we pray right now, Father, for just an emboldenedness to, by your Spirit, Father, that you would pour your Spirit out upon us and equip us, Lord, and that we might have the, the courage to run into the war, Lord, that we wouldn't run away. This morning, I pray, maybe for somebody here that doesn't feel equipped or doesn't feel your presence in their life in a way that they can, they can do that. And yet, I, I just pray, Lord, that you help them to realize that if we all focus on ourselves, we'll never do anything because none of us are able but you're able, and if you're in us, then we are able. So this morning, God, will you just bring that truth to light? Will you encourage your saints in that way, Lord, to recognize, to, Lord, that we are not worthy of you using us or working in our lives in, in these ways to even go into the world and tell other people about you? Man, and yet that's the call for us, Lord. You saved us. You redeemed us by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. We were walking in victory already. So help us this morning, Lord, to wage the good warfare. We ask you, Lord, if there is anyone here this morning that doesn't have a relationship with you, that you help them come to that place this morning. The enemy works overtime to, to deceive us into thinking that we're right with you when we're not. So if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, will you 
reveal to them their need, and will you help them to respond to the gospel, Lord, the fact that you died, Jesus, that you rose again from the dead so that we could be saved, so our sins could be forgiven, so we could spend eternity with you in heaven. And so we thank you, Lord. We ask you to just continue to move in our presence this morning, and we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.